wildlife naturalist Chris Gibson joins me now. And Chris, you've been working at the Beth Chateau Gardens in Colchester. Just tell us a bit about what you've been up to there. Hi, Oliver. It's good to see you. Um, yes, that's it's fine. I've been working now at Beth Chateau Garden for about five years, almost since I took early retirement. Um, it, it, it's interesting how it came about, actually, because I've, I've lived and worked in northeast Essex for 40 years and been a regular visitor to those gardens. But just before COVID, my wife and I went around the gardens and saw a plant growing in the ponds there called Palia delbata. Very stately plant, stately leaves at least. But we noticed that its flowers were full of dead insects. Uh, we thought that wasn't a particularly good look for a garden that prides itself on its ecological performance. So uh, we first of all researched it and realised, yes, it is a thing. Where, where they naturally come from in Central America, they are pollinated by carpenter bees, which are big old butch bees and can fight the way out when the flower grabs them by the tongue. Um, but our little bees aren't capable of doing it. So, very sad situation where we had the killing fields around the pods of Beth Chateau's garden. Anyway, we got in touch with the head gardener, the then head gardener, Dave Ward, and he invited me to a meeting there, and they were, to their eternal credit, extremely positive about it all. Julia, Beth's granddaughter, said, yep, we'll stop selling it, and Dave, you will make sure it doesn't flower anymore, will you? And that's how it's been ever since. It was only a, a few weeks after that when Julia got in touch with me and said, oh, by the way, Chris, we like what you've done there. And uh, would you care to join the team? So I'm now on the team as the uh, the wildlife advocate for the garden. Now, that involves me engaging with the staff and with visitors alike and trying to encourage them to enjoy and want to promote the wildlife that we share our gardens with. So, so is that, that an example of an invasive species there in, well, in a British setting and perhaps something that gardeners ought to think about a bit more, how it impacts upon the native wildlife? Yes, yeah, so it certainly should. It's not an invasive species. Talia doesn't invade uh, our habitats. It's from warmer wetlands than, than ours, sort of Central America. But it is grown a lot in gardens and offered by many uh, mail order companies as a plant which benefits pollinators because it attracts them. Unfortunately, that attraction is all too often fatal. So, you know, we, we've tried to have a bit of a campaign to get others to take it off their sales um, pitches. I've written blogs about it and so on and so forth. I think the word is slowly getting through, but it, uh, the great thing about the plant, though, is that, as I say, it did get me that foot in the door with the Bechatos people, and uh, I've never looked back since. It's a beautiful garden at Bechatos Garden there. I think some of the shady areas, the woodland, the natural woodland habitat is, is fabulous. Um, lots of wooden enemies, lots of different small woodland plants um, are there, aren't they? So, I mean, are there other parts of the garden that you particularly like? Well, all, all the garden, actually, the, the bits around the pond, apart from the, this uh, Thalia, uh, obviously teeming with dragonflies. It's the things that are not the flowers that really excite me, so they're teeming with dragonflies during the summer months. Uh, the dry garden, the, the gravel garden up at the top, Beth's 
pride and joy, the thing that really she uh, set aside Beth's approach to gardening uh, over and above anything else. That was where she was the real visionary in the gardening world, obviously helped by the ecological knowledge of her husband, Andrew, who uh, was able to tell her what plants grow in the right place. And she was able to come up with the idea of put the right plant in the right place. You know, for me, that, that uh, gravel garden completely embodies the Chateau philosophy. Um, right plant, right place is as neat an encapsulation of sustainability as you could possibly imagine. If you put the plant where it wants to be, you do not need to feed it with fertilizer, with pesticides, with water. You put the plant in the right place and the inputs of uh, our resources and also our time need to be so less. So the the really it's um it's it's the garden which points the way to gardens of the future. So yes, I particularly love that one, and that's one of the places I spend a lot of time showing people the wildlife visiting those plants, mostly plants from the Mediterranean, mostly non-native British plants, but plants which to a T are drought tolerant, i.e. climate compliant, and also beautiful, so they're human compliant, and they are insect friendly, feeding pollen and nectar to our insects of the world, and therefore it works on, it ticks every box. So that's an interesting point you raised there about bringing plants that perhaps aren't native to the UK to the UK because of climate change as we get drier, perhaps need to have drought tolerant plants in our gardens. And it's then that we also have to give consideration to that first point you were making, which is some of these aren't supposed to be in our ecosystem here, are they? So they perhaps have effects that we perhaps wouldn't necessarily think about on the wildlife. Well, indeed, you've, you've got to be always very wary of that. And the first principle has always got to be, of course, take all steps that you can to avoid your garden plants from getting out into the countryside because the countryside doesn't want them by and large. Yes, our insects may move into our gardens to use those resources uh, from the gardens, but we don't want the garden, the plants themselves to end up out in the countryside because of the adverse effects they can have. We can have seen how you can find whole swathes of uh, Cornwall underneath hot and top fig, Coprobotus. Uh, the native plants completely swamped out, notwithstanding the fact that the flowers are very attractive to bees, but we don't want it there. We want the native plants. So, yes, it's always got to be a balance. But at a time when the climate is changing a lot faster than any of us ever thought it was going to do, I'm afraid we need those non-native plants in our gardens, at least, to provide a resource that... Um, that the nature cannot provide. Take take this very time of year. This is February. <clears throat> In February, the native British plantscape is really poor in nectar and pollen. Indeed, it has been throughout the winter ever since uh, the ivy flowers disappeared in September. Okay, from uh, January, probably gorse came into flower. That's that's useful. But gorse doesn't and will not grow everywhere. So it's gardeners growing the Mahonias, non-native Mahonias, the non-native Strabulonisseras, etc., etc., etc. It's gardeners growing those things in their gardens 
which is actually keeping our bees alive because our bees no longer are they going into hibernation like they used to do. Only 20 years ago, we used to think, yeah, if you saw a bee before the beginning of March, there was something really odd going on. Well, every year there's something odd going on now because we see them almost always uh, on the 1st of, 1st of January, never mind the 1st of March. So these bees coming out of hibernation or not even going into hibernation, they need food and only our gardens can provide that at the moment. In the fullness of time, the countryside might catch up, but that needs evolutionary spans of time rather than the few short years we can afford to give it now. Mm, that's fascinating. And, you know, um, this time of year in Beth Tatter Gardens, what would you say is sort of blooming in colour that, that's well worth going to see there? Well, the we're just coming off the back of the snowdrop season. So a week ago, it would have been a snowdrop, some fantastic snowdrops there, uh, most of which are extremely good for your early bees. Now, I say most of which because some of the highly mutated, the highly bred cultivars, where the particularly the nectaries have been converted to additional petals, they promise everything but deliver nothing. However, there's plenty else apart from the snowdrops. Now it's the hellebores coming on. Again, most hellebores, the ones with the five petal-like sepals, not the ones with the frills and the pom-poms and the all singing, all dancing uh, mutated flowers. They, as I say, they offer everything but deliver nothing to the wildlife. My favourite, though, has to be the choir boy. It has to be the um, uh, winter aconite the Aranthus, called a choir boy because of the rough of the leaves around its flower heads. And they are just wonderful. They open up in the sunlight. And as they open their flowers, in fact, again, with the Aranthus, it's the petals are, the so-called petals are actually sepals. If you look at the base of those sepals, you'll see the nectaries, which are like great tubes of nectar, uh, they're effectively essentially rolled round um, petals down at the bottom, vast vats of nectar waiting for the bees and the hoverflies to come in and drink. And in doing so, brushing against the stamens, which uh, do the effect of pollination as well. Of course, many of the bees and also hoverflies also eat pollen. So uh, what's not to like about a plant like uh, Eranthus? And, of course, daffodils and narcissus and things are also yes, out in bloom as well. There's, all, there's something to see all the year round. Um, and the great thing about Beth Chateaus is that because the garden provides itself on being the home of ecological and sustainable planting, the whole garden is a garden of delights for nature. This is reflected in the number in the plants. There are few, very few of these multi-petal forms which don't provide the resource that nature wants and I'm so happy that since I've been involved I'll also be able to guide the management of the garden to becoming both garden and nursery fully organic no peat no pesticides we're not poisoning the world by creating a garden that we want the world to see that means we live with holes in the leaves of the bascoms and mullanes. Every year have holes bitten in them by the mullane moths. Well, the mullane moth caterpillars are beautiful in their own right, 
and we wear those holes as a badge of honour to say, yes, we're living alongside nature. We are not killing nature in order to present a perfect stereotypical view of a garden. Thank you, Chris. It's fascinating to talk to you about the Beth Chateau Gardens at Colchester and to hear about your role working alongside them there, advising on nature. Chris Gibson, who's a wildlife naturalist. Thank you very much, Oliver. Okay.